Welcome back to Unknown Friends, my book review podcast. I'm Rochelle Ferguson of Kitty Wham Productions, and this is episode nine. A very quick reminder, if you have not already, please subscribe to this podcast. If you're listening in the Apple Podcasts app, you can also give Unknown Friends a one to five star rating, and you can also leave a review, which helps other listeners learn about the podcast and decide whether it's worth their time. I'm so honored that you've decided the podcast is worth your time. So thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. And if you have any suggestions for what I can improve in the production of the podcast or what books I could review in future, I would love your input. You can email me at kittywam at gmail.com or message me on Facebook or Instagram. Now on to today's book review. Our discussion today will center on Marilyn Robinson's novel published in 2004 titled Gilead. So a quick snapshot of Marilyn Robinson. She is an American writer. She was born in 1943 in Idaho. And she now lives in Iowa. I think it's interesting. Her first novel, Housekeeping, published in 1980, was set in Idaho. And her other novels are set in Iowa. So uh, she has a strong connection to place. And that comes out in her writing. So Robinson is a novelist, obviously, and an essayist. She has published several works of nonfiction in addition to her novels. She has also been a professor and speaker at numerous universities throughout her lifetime. She has written and published four novels so far, although a fifth, as I understand it, is coming out this September, I think this fall sometime. She's won many awards for her writing, and specifically with her novel Gilead, which is today's topic, she won the 2005 Pulitzer Prize for fiction. All her novels, except her first, Housekeeping, are part of the same saga, you could say, which Gilead began in 2004. So following Gilead, we have Home, and then Lila, and the one coming out this fall is called Jack, and those are all companion novels. Now, I was first introduced to Marilyn Robinson's writings, let's see, um, almost six years ago, when I was a sophomore in college in the fall of 2014, it would have been. I was in a literature class with one of my favorite professors, uh, Dr. Lorraine Eady, then now Dr. Lorraine Murphy. And uh, she introduced me to Housekeeping, Robinson's first novel. And it stuck with me. She said at the time that she believed Robinson's works would one day be considered classics. And I have to agree. Dr. Murphy also introduced me to The Portrait of a Lady by Henry James, by the way, which is the book I couldn't stop talking about last week. So thank you, Dr. Murphy. 
So I had read housekeeping in college, and then a couple years ago, I tried to read Gilead, but I did not get very far into it. It was, I think it was my first year out of college when I had lost some momentum in my reading habits and lacked the motivation and stamina to read books that didn't grab me from the start. So I got a little ways into Gilead and it just wasn't getting a hold of me or really I wasn't getting a hold of it. Um, And so sadly I quit. But this year I really wanted to try Gilead again. And since I have redeveloped and improved my reading habits over the last year or two, I didn't find it hard this time to get into it and get through it. But it is a restrained, tranquil, uh, contemplative book. So just be sure not to approach it expecting a dramatic or suspenseful story. It is intriguing, but the conflict and the questions that drive it are more internal than external. So the book is set in 1956 in the fictional town of Gilead in Iowa. The main character and the narrator is a man named John Ames. He is a Congregationalist minister in this small town where he was born and raised. At the time of his writing of the book, he is aging, he's in his mid-70s, and he has a fatal heart condition. But he has a young son. So Ames was married as a young man, but his wife died in childbirth and their baby daughter died a few days later. So he then spent most of his life as a widower. But in his 60s, he met and married Lila, a woman who is much younger than he is and comes from quite a different background. But even in their differences, They were very healing for each other, and they now have a son who is seven years old at the time of the novel. But John Ames, with his heart condition, is anticipating that he will die fairly soon, and although he feels ready in one sense, he also feels an understandable sense of regret that his wife and son will have to carry on without him. His little boy will grow up without a father. And so Ames writes this narrative essentially as a very long letter or a kind of journal or memoir written to his son, recounting some of his memories, things about their family, and just things he wants his son to know and learn as he grows up. So that's how the book gets its form. It's written like a journal with a mix of everyday details and some theological, even metaphysical musings and Ames's recollections of his younger years and the things he's experienced, as well as some events that transpire as he writes. So um, the novel reads like a journal but not like my journal. It's not um, confusing or boring. It, it is honest and vulnerable, but it's, it's conversational because Ames is, is writing it to be read by his son. And he 
as an older man with a rich life and history behind him, he has a lot of fascinating things to tell. And so while his style of writing is simple and sincere, there's a depth of experience, of observation and understanding, and a a vision of life that lifts his words off the page. There's a, a kind of unpretentious elegance to his writing. So don't let the fact that it's written like a journal make you think the novel is uh, bland or vague. It's down to earth, but it's truly uh, graceful and lyrical. So to get more specific, the kinds of stories and ideas Ames shares with his son in this book. He talks a lot about his own father and grandfather, especially in the first part of the book. Ames is actually the third in a line of Congregationalist ministers, and the third, John Ames. But his father and grandfather were two very different kinds of men. His grandfather, John Ames I, was um, a radical, uncompromising man. He was a chaplain in the Civil War and very active in the abolitionist movement. In fact, he was an associate of John Brown and did not shy away from violence in carrying out his beliefs. In contrast, our narrator's father, John Ames II, also a minister, was an adamant pacifist. He abhorred violence. So, as you can imagine, there was a lot of tension between him and his father. So, John Ames III recalls these two and their difficult relationship as he writes to his own son. And he also narrates a little bit about his brother, who was um, a prodigal son, if you will, which is a strong theme throughout the book. Ames also tells his son a little bit about his early years as a minister, his young wife and child who died, and his years alone. And then, of course, how he met his second wife, Lila, and the joy she brought into his life. Ames also talks a good deal about his best friend, a Reverend Boughton, who is the Presbyterian minister in Gilead. Boughton, unlike Ames, had uh, several children who are now middle-aged, and Ames reflects on the different paths life has taken the two of them on and how dissimilar their roles as fathers have been, with Ames's own son being so young. And a detail that becomes prominent in the, the second half of the book especially is that one of Bowson's children, Jack, actually, actually named after John Ames, the narrator, he is a prodigal son. And as Ames is writing this letter uh, or journal to his little boy, Jack actually returns home to Gilead after years away. And his presence is something Ames has to wrestle with deeply. How to treat Jack, what to say to him, what not to say to him, how to think about him. That challenge and also the mystery of Jack's character and his past becomes in some ways the driving force behind the plot as the novel 
develops. So I, I won't reveal too much there. But already you can probably sense some of the novel's predominant concerns. Most obviously, Gilead is exploring fathers and sons. It's asking what is the role and responsibility of a father? What is the the proper relationship to a son? And what do you do when something impedes that relationship? Whether you're talking Ames's old age that prevents him from being the typical father to a seven-year-old boy, and which will likely take him away from his family soon, or whether something spiritual obstructs the father-son relationship. Waywardness on the part of the son, or, or disagreements, or misunderstandings that cause division. There are not easy answers to these situations, and Ames, and of course the author, Marilyn Robinson, openly admits that. But of course, we we still have to wrestle with whatever circumstances we're in and seek to understand how to be reconciled with our past, with the legacy, whether good or bad, that was left to us by previous generations, and how to pass on what we believe and value to the next generation to the best of our ability. And not only is Ames concerned with father-son relationships in this world, but he often makes the connection to God the Father and his Son, and God as our Father. So he tries to learn from God what it means to be a good father, and also from his own love for his Son, he tries to catch glimpses of what God's love for his children must be like. And this leads me to one big thing I want to say and praise the novel for. Marilyn Robinson in Gilead is so open about Christianity. And this is is a 2004 novel published and respected in secular circles, ranked and awarded highly. I mean, it won the the Pulitzer Prize for fiction, right? I read that The Guardian called it one of the finest novels of the 21st century. So I am just amazed and delighted that faith is so frankly and favorably discussed in this novel, and it still receives such high acclaim. I mean, Robinson's narrator, Ames, is continually revolving theological questions in his mind. His his journaling almost slips into prayer itself sometimes. And he's just a good man. So often, Christians, um, especially preachers in fiction, are portrayed as hypocrites. There's maybe there's scandal in their past, or they're fanatics or harsh fundamentalists. But John Ames is a good man. He's a devoted church leader and a loving husband and father. Is he perfect? No. And he certainly never claims to be. Um, does he have it all figured out? Absolutely not. And he readily acknowledges that too. But I, I just deeply appreciate the radiance and the grace of this novel and this character, which comes, I think, from the Christian faith infused in the story. And the very fact that Ames does not pretend to have everything figured out is one of the book's beauties. And one of the things that rings so true about the novel. 
I, I don't agree with some of the doctrinal beliefs Ames expresses as he writes, but his humility is so clear. The fact that he's seeking for understanding and he walks by faith, not by sight, that makes any doctrinal statements he might include totally inoffensive and sympathetic, even though he doesn't always win me over. And I think that's why this book has gotten such traction, even in secular culture. It's honest, which means both that Ames's Christianity is wide open, it's completely exposed and genuine, and it means that it's humble. Uh, there are many things he does not understand, and that's just life. <laughs> that's reality. So, I'm, I'm grateful that Marilyn Robinson wrote the book the way she did, even though I do disagree with some aspects of the novel's theology. Her narrator certainly has a healthy Christianity, and I love seeing that, especially in contemporary novels, where it's so rare. So, faith, our relationship to God, the relationship between fathers and sons, those are the biggest themes in the novel, but there are also various issues that weave through the story. War and the place of violence, um, you have racism, poverty, issues that have so many different facets and do not have simple solutions. And Robinson and her narrator Ames, they don't try to come up with simple solutions. They wrestle with these issues, they look at them from different angles, but ultimately they don't claim to understand them perfectly. The same goes for the theme of the prodigal son. What do you do when someone you love turns their back on the things you value most deeply, but you still love the person? I don't know what to say to that. There's no formula. There's a thousand different variations on that theme, and each one calls for a slightly different response. So, from what Robinson writes, you have to seek God and keep seeking and plumb the depths of your own heart and do your best. While our narrator Ames doesn't have a prodigal son himself, he has a prodigal brother and his best friend has a prodigal son. So it's not even just about fathers and sons, but what is the role of a brother or a friend in that situation? It's painfully difficult to discern. So while Gilead doesn't give us all the answers we would like, it gives us a model of a life spent following God and earnestly trying to do what is right. I find it interesting, too, that Robinson has written three more novels telling the story of Gilead, or connected stories, from different angles. I think that's evidence of the complexity of life. The novel that directly follows Gilead, called Home, is from the perspective of the family of Reverend Boughton, Ames's best friend. And the book coming out this fall is called Jack, who is Boughton's prodigal son. But then um, the third novel 
Lila is from the point of view of Ames's young wife. So I've not read those others, but I would love to, to see where else Robinson goes with this town, these people, and all the stories they have to tell and the nuances that their perspectives lend to some of these themes. The last thing I want to share briefly is possibly my favorite thing about the novel Gilead. The the theme, I suppose, or the the vision of life that most deeply struck a chord with me as I read. Integral to the way Ames writes is this vision of the loveliness of mundane things. Perhaps there's even a sacredness to them sometimes. I think because of his age and experience and the approach of death, he's looking back on his life and the world around him, and he loves life. Not just love in the sense of enjoy, but he cherishes every little thing about life on this earth. He sees the the goodness of life a little more clearly than ever before now that he's about to leave it behind. And he knows, he trusts that heaven will be better, better beyond our imagination. And yet he recognizes the hand of God in this world too. The hand of the creator and the presence of the father in his creation, both in nature and in people. Ames recounts a specific time when when he was a boy and his father split a biscuit in half and shared it with him. And he depicts this little scene as a kind of communion, a Eucharist. And images of baptism, too, come up in, in very ordinary settings. Ames sees water itself as something beautiful and miraculous, even. There's just a wonder to this life, even though we are surrounded by so much evil, and this is a a poor, perishable world, as Ames calls it. But even so, God's word still breathed it into being, and his living word lived and died upon it. So, that alone gives it some distinction of honor. And though the earth will be destroyed one day, God plans to create a new earth. So, surely there will be some things there that remind us a little of this present world. Or perhaps it's more accurate to say some things here are beautiful and sacred because they remind us of things we haven't seen yet, but we will one day in the new earth. I'll just read you one sentence from Gilead, which is amazing and not only shows Ames's perspective on this, but also shows you how unlike an ordinary journal this novel is. It's informed by a long literary tradition which elevates the style. Ames writes, In eternity, this world will be Troy, I believe, and all that is past here will be the epic of the universe, the ballad they sing in the streets. So, even though this book doesn't give clear answers to some of the hard questions it asks, the story is filled with light and goodness, and that's what most makes it worth reading, in my opinion. 
as I said before, I don't agree with all the doctrine and... Of course, doctrine affects the choices people make, so I don't agree with all of the characters' choices. But Ames holds his beliefs with an open hand. And that itself is beautiful and welcomes thoughtful interaction from the reader. Really, both the humble beliefs Ames does express and the book's unanswered questions offer a great deal to contemplate and to learn from. So I appreciate that and I highly recommend this novel, Marilyn Robinson's Gilead. If you have read Gilead or any of its companion novels, Home or Lila, I would love to hear your thoughts. Just email or message me, and I would so enjoy continuing this conversation beyond this episode. Next week, it's a little weird to think we are already approaching double digits, but in my 10th episode, I will be going back to 19th century British literature, which I can never tear myself away from for very long, and I plan to review Anthony Trollope's novel, The Warden, which is the first in his Chronicles of Barsetshire. So tune in next week for that episode, and thank you for listening. <laughs>